You're listening to The Central Cast, recorded each week in front of a live audience in Glendale, California. Our text today is the conversion story of Saul of Tarsus, a.k.a. the Apostle Paul, from Acts chapter 9, and it reads this way. Now, as he was going along and approaching Damascus, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He asked, who are you? The reply came, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But get up and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless because they heard the voice, but saw no one. Saul got up from the ground, and though his eyes were opened, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him to Damascus. For three days, he was without sight and neither ate nor drank anything. All right, there's the text. Today, this is part two in our series called Spiritual Volcanology, which means we're digging into the rocks of religion, namely certain passages and stories in the Bible, to find the mystical fire within them. And I got this idea spiritual volcanology from this quote from a Benedictine monk who's a bit of a mystic himself, maybe more than a bit. His name is David Stendhal Rast, and he says this, and I'll just read it again as I read it last week. The religions start from mysticism. There is no other way to start a religion. But I compare this to a volcano that gushes forth, and then the magma flows down the sides of the mountain and cools off. And when it reaches the bottom, it's just, it's just rocks. You'd never guess that there was fire in it. So after a couple hundred years or 2,000 years or more, what was once alive is dead rock. Doctrine becomes doctrinaire. Rituals become ritualistic. Morals become moralistic. What do we do with it? We have to push through this crust and go to the fire that's within it, end quote. So that's what we're doing here. The question is, what is mysticism? You, I'm sure you've heard that term before. What is it? What does it mean? Basically, mysticism is this idea of oneness. Oneness. Our oneness with God, or the absolute. And not just our oneness with God, but really the oneness of all things, cosmologically speaking. Everything is connected to everything, and everything is connected to the absolute or ultimate reality, whatever that is. God. Pick, pick your metaphor. Pick your term. Everything is really one thing. Many of the church fathers of the early medieval church, believed and taught this idea. This was known as Neoplatonism. Neo meaning new, Platonism meaning Plato's philosophy. This idea that um, 
all matter, energy, space, and time are rooted in a cosmic mind, cosmic consciousness, if you will, a cosmic intellect that we haphazardly call God, the divine, the absolute. Again, these are human words to describe what is ultimately ineffable, undescribable. This, this is Neoplatonism. And again, this is not a new idea. <laughs> this goes back thousands of years. This isn't new age, a new age fad, this idea, this, this mysticism. This is just really at the heart of our religious traditions, both Christianity, Judaism, Buddhism, Hinduism, lots of world religions, the shamanic religions, indigenous religions. A lot of them have this idea built into them because I believe it's because as conscious, sentient, intelligent beings, we are intuitively aware, intuitively aware that we are connected to the cosmos and to everything and that we exist in this web of interrelatedness. Even our, our consciousness, our awareness, this crazy thing we call consciousness, we, we are aware of our connection to everything. And that mind, mind is at the heart of reality. We, we, this is something I think human beings are intuitively aware of and have been so for millennia and is responsible, largely responsible, not entirely, but largely responsible for why there are religions and spiritual traditions. Anyway, this idea of Neoplatonism in the church, and these related mystical ideas, had a huge impact, a huge impact on the church in the early medieval era and even the entire Western worldview as it developed. And I say this simply to say that these ideas we're talking about today and throughout this series, again, are not the latest New Age fad. These are ancient ideas that are at the roots of Christianity along with many other religions. And so today we're looking at the story of Paul then Saul, his name was, his name changed after this conversion experience. His experience on the Damascus Road, one of the more mystical themes in our scriptures, I don't know if you've noticed in your years of attending church or reading the Bible, there's lots of stories in there of people having visions, and dreams, and encounters with spirits, ghosts even. It's in there. There's lots of that in there. And I think these stories and these experiences are able to tell us a lot about ourselves and perhaps even about the world around us and what we might call God, the absolute. The Bible is full of these stories, and whether or not these stories are historical does not really concern me today. It's a good question. But whether or not these stories are historical, particularly Paul's Damascus Road experience, um, doesn't concern me today. The fact is countless people, including countless modern people, have these kinds of experiences. And we'll look at a couple of those today too, but first let's consider Paul's story. It's important, it's important to understand the backstory here to what happened to him. As many of you probably know, Paul, who again was then called Saul, sort of confusing, uh, was a notorious persecutor of the early church. 
he was essentially tasked by the Jerusalem religious leadership to go around and arrest Jewish followers of this rabbi, this now dead and gone rabbi named Jesus of Nazareth, um, because they were labeled heretics and apostates for doing so. And that meant, meant you could be arrested, imprisoned, have your property seized, maybe even killed. Paul was a henchman. He was the enforcer for this Jerusalem religious establishment. And again, he went around with a band of soldiers under his command, arresting fellow Jews who were followers of what was then called the way. This was before Christianity was labeled Christianity. It was just called the way, which sounds very Mandalorian to me, <laughs> for, the, for you Star Wars nerds, right? The way, okay. So Saul was doing terrible things to good and innocent people. And you can imagine how this might have weighed on his conscience, as it should have, right? I mean, unless he was a sociopath, incapable of empathy and remorse, going around hurting people must have weighed on his conscience. Now, that's important to understand or to consider, because there's a theme in many spiritual experiences of the experiencer being traumatized, or suffering, strong feelings of fear or remorse or grief that precipitated this spiritual, mystical, paranormal experience. Trauma and suffering, as it turns out, often are often the thing that stimulates, creates, leads to spiritual, mystical, and paranormal experiences. I suggest this might have been the case with Paul. And it may have led to a psychotic break on the road to Damascus, where we're told he was blinded by a light in the sky and heard a voice calling him to repent, who he believed to be Jesus of Nazareth, this deceased Galilean that he was essentially. It's fascinating that the voice said, why are you persecuting me? <laughs> Didn't say, why are you persecuting my followers? No, this voice took it very personally. <laughs> why are you persecuting me? which is an incredible question to receive from a light in the sky. Hey man, why are you attacking me? Do you know who I am? I mean, that's a pretty startling thing to hear from a light in the sky, right? Anyway, so Paul is going around, you could imagine he's overcome by grief and remorse, at least unconsciously overcome, for, for spending all his time going around hurting people in the name of God. But even if this encounter, this, this experience was all in his head, just the result of a panic attack or a psychotic break, should that make it any less real? I would argue not. In fact, we're told that his traveling companions, they didn't see a light, but they heard a voice. And it sounded like thunder, they said. Interesting. This is a common feature, actually, in many paranormal experiences. The boundaries between the mental and the material are blurred. The experience is simultaneously happening inside the person's head, but also manifesting in some physical way in the world around them. The experience has simultaneous both subjective and objective features. It's imaginal, 
but it's also physical. These boundaries get blurred in these experiences. Rigid materialists are going to struggle to accept this idea because for them, only that which is physical, only that which can be quantified and tested and scientifically, scientifically verified is real. But human beings have experiences all the time that defy scientific explanation and scientific examination. Human beings have experiences all the time that blur the boundaries between the mental and the material, the so-called spiritual and physical. And this blurring of boundaries, or the revealing that these boundaries are not hard and fixed things, is part of the very essence of mysticism. Paranormal and spiritual experiences reveal that the material and mental world are entirely connected and really the same thing. There is no dualism. There's not a material world and a immaterial world. There's not a, a, a mental world and a material world. No, these things are really one and the same thing. It's not a dualism. It's really a kind of monism. This is mysticism. It's monistic. It's about oneness. It's not a two-world split. It's not that heaven is above and earth is below. No, heaven and earth are really one thing. We know, we see this even in the sciences, energy and matter. They're not two different things. Matter is congealed energy. Matter is just energy in a solid state. We know this. What is mind? What is consciousness? How does mind and consciousness erupt from a three-pound squishy object in your head? Well, maybe it doesn't. Maybe mind is really behind all matter. This, this is where people are going today. This is where my money's at, I guess you could say. This is mysticism. I've had, I've personally had spiritual experiences that I think reinforce this, this view for me. I've shared this story before, but it bears repeating. In the year 2000, I was part of this house church in the Chicago suburbs, which is actually where I met Emily. Every Friday night, we would gather in this person's house on the Lake Michigan shoreline uh, in their living room. They had a big house. They had a pretty big living room where you could fit 30 or 40 high school and college age kids. And every Friday night, for three to four hours, we would engage in this worship service in the dark. When I was the drummer, in fact, I played, didn't have a cajon, but I had a djembe. Um, I was the drummer. And uh, we would just worship and pray and sing in the dark together, 30 or 40 of us, every Friday night for three or four hours. Which, when you think about it, was like having these three-hour-long, intense group meditations, right? In the dark, using repetitive music, which is what worship music is, right? And, and we're singing and we're chanting and we're praying. And it's funny, you know, we weren't deliberately trying to create an atmosphere where people could enter into trances or have altered states of consciousness, but that's exactly what we were doing, right? I mean, this is just ancient stuff. 
which is kind of cool when you think about it. I mean, now I'm like, oh my God, I can't stand those songs <laughs> anymore. And the theology is terrible, right? I look, think back on those songs, you know, coming out of, oh gosh, I can't remember, like the Passion Book or, what's the name of that church in Australia? Hillsong, sorry, that was songs, yeah. Can't stand the music or the theology anymore, right? Triggered would be the word, right? But um, there's something really ancient and primal about, you know, gathering in the dark with your tribe, maybe around a fire and singing and dancing and chanting until you all just basically trip out, <laughs> right? I mean, it's kind of cool. And, and the idea, you know, it's just ancient, it's primal. You, you, you engage in these spiritual practices with your tribe in the dark and these meditative practices in order to what? To experience this hidden, unseen realm or to get in contact with the spirit. I, I get goosebumps even when I think about it. I, that's kind of cool. I like that still. I mean, I actually go sometimes with Aiden, who's sitting over there, to... Uh, the cathedral, the St. John's Cathedral in downtown L.A. here once a month. In fact, coming up the first Sunday of October, this happens again. Once a month, they have what's called a compline service, which is this ancient liturgy that this choir sings, and you sit in the dark. It's a candlelight service, and they fill the sanctuary with incense, and there's this ethereal singing happening, and they're singing scripture and liturgy, and it's mystical, and I love it. We'll probably go there on the first Sunday in October. So talk to me if you want to go. Um, anyway, at a particular high point in this service, I'm, I'm back now in the year 2000 in this person's house in the living room with my friends. At a particular high point in the service one night, when I was feeling most in the spirit, I was having, I was at what we would call spiritually high. And if you've been that way before, you know that, that feeling of just tranquility and this sense of connection with something beyond. So I'm having this experience. And I saw the image of a scalpel in my, in my head. And I felt like someone there was going to have an operation, a surgery. And I felt like I was supposed to say that everything's going to be okay. So I, in a break in the music, we'd always have these like, we'd, have these like down times where it would just be silence in the room, right? So there's this break, and I say it. Nobody says a word, and we just go on to the next song. Days pass, and I'm convinced at this point, okay, I'm crazy. I don't know what I'm talking about, but at least I took a chance, and I was nervous to do it. Days later, it was a Tuesday. This happened on a Friday. I was back at that house for a Bible study, because we did Bible studies on Tuesdays and worship on Friday nights. This, well, she was a girl. She was a high school kid named Elsa, who, by the way, Emily and I are still friends with today. We see her sometimes when we go up to Oregon and visit her family. Elsa comes up to, come, she's there for the group meeting, and she says in front of the entire group, I was here on Friday night, and Aaron had this vision of a scalpel and said someone here is going to have an operation, and they're to know that whatever, God's with them and everything's going to be okay. She says, I hadn't told any, I, I just had walked in that night, seriously, like 30 seconds before Aaron said that. And I hadn't told anybody yet, but I'm, I had to have hernia surgery this week. And I was terrified about it, and I was having nightmares about it. But after Aaron said that, I was sure it was for me, and I, 
had peace and no more nightmares and the surgery went well. Everyone is blown away. Me most of all. Now keep in mind, these were high school kids and a couple of college age kids like me. We knew each other. We, everybody knew each other in this tiny little community. We would have known if somebody was going to have sur surgery, right? And these are kids. Who's having surgery? It's an amazing experience. To this day, I kind of don't know what to do with it, but I, I hang on to it. Nothing like that has ever happened to me before or since. But it happened. I'll give you one more story of someone having an experience like this. This comes from a very unlikely source. A guy by the name of Michael Shermer, some of you might be aware of. He's a, a popular, well-known skeptic and, de and debunker of all things pseudoscientific, supernatural, and paranormal. He writes, he's a regular contributor for Scientific American Magazine, and he also published his own uh, periodical called Skeptic Magazine years ago. He's an author of a dozen books, debates a lot, pretty well-known guy. However, in 2014, something happened to him that, in his own words, shook his skepticism to the core. Here's the story. It was his wedding day, and he and his bride, Jennifer, were at home getting the house ready for the wedding. The wedding was going to be in their, in their home. Suddenly, they noticed that music was playing from somewhere in the back of the house where the bedrooms were, and they were like, what's going on? We don't have a, a sound system in the ceiling or something like that. So they went back there to investigate, and they started looking you know, for a laptop or a phone, couldn't find the source, and they, opened, they, they said they even opened the back door to see if the music was wafting from you know, the neighbor's house. So couldn't, couldn't find out where it was coming from. They, fo they followed the sound eventually to a desk. Now, let me give you a little bit of backstory. Jennifer was deeply missing her grandfather, who had died when she was 16 years old. She was deeply missing his presence at her wedding. Michael knew this. This man raised her until she was 16, and that's, that's when he died. When she moved in with Michael a few weeks prior, she brought with her this old, broken transistor radio that was her grandfather's favorite, and she asked Michael to fix it. And so he put new batteries in it, couldn't get it to work, opened it up, tried to find loose connections or broken connections that he could solder. Nothing he did could get this thing to work. So he just took it and he stuffed it in the desk drawer in their bedroom. And so here they are, looking for the source of this, this, this music, like old-timey love songs playing. <laughs> and they follow it to the desk, and as soon as they get there, Michael says, Jennifer turned to me with a look of terror on her face and said, that can't be what I think it is, is it? Sure enough, they opened the desk door, pulled out the radio, and it was playing these, it was tuned to this old, I don't know what you describe it, like old love songs, old romantic love songs from the 40s or 50s. And it was playing his favorite song. And they sat in stunned silence with that radio for a few minutes until Jennifer said with tears in her eyes, I know that he's here with us now. And for the rest of the day, Michael said, that thing just played. And that night they went to sleep listening to the radio play old romantic love songs. Fittingly, the next day it turned off and has not worked since. Michael says he doesn't know what to do with this experience. <laughs> he, 
He remains a committed skeptic, but he's a lot more nuanced now in his opinions. He still writes for Skeptic Magazine and Scientific American, but he's much more nuanced than he was before. He's, he's more gracious and open-minded about such things than he was before. He says in his own words, his own words, this experience shook my skepticism <clears throat> to its core, and rightfully so. And maybe that's the best effect these experiences can have on us. You know, they don't prove anything. I'm not here to say, ah, this proves this, right? No, it doesn't, they don't prove anything per se. They, don't, they certainly don't prove the existence of God, you know, this God or that God or any God. They don't prove the afterlife or this religion or that religion's theology, but they at least open us up to a world of possibilities. They at least remind us that reality is really weird. And consciousness is really weird. And we are all connected to each other and the world around us in ways we are only now beginning to understand. I think these experiences at least do that. And that's enough. I mean, that's really cool. Seeing visions, encountering strange lights in the sky like Saul did on the road to Damascus, encountering spirits or ghosts, things like this happen to people. They happen all the time. They've always happened. They happen in dreams. They, they happen in radios. They happen on roads to Damascus. They, they happen in people's living rooms, like what happened to me. These things happen. And I would argue that they're more common than we know. And I think hearing about such experiences, you know, telling these stories, it's so important to tell stories. Telling these stories reminds us of who we really are as human beings, how special we are, how special life and consciousness is, and how we are a part of this amazing, mysterious, vast, and frankly, really strange universe. Which is to say that these stories remind us, I think, most of all, they remind us of our connection. Our connection to the cosmos and each other. I think we modern, sophisticated, learned, scientific people, I think in some ways we've lost the knowledge of our cosmic nature as human beings. Interestingly, it's the ancients that knew this best, and we're rediscovering it. We're relearning what was always true. We are cosmic. We are cosmic. And I think that knowledge is inherently meaningful and something that, that beautifies life and something that fills us with awe and even a sense of spiritual vitality. Whatever these experiences mean, wherever they come from, 
I think they, it, they give us a sense of spiritual vitality and spiritual connection, a sense of being part of something that's bigger than us, that's hidden and unseen, but all around us and that we are a part of. I think that's inherently spiritual and affirming of spirituality. And I think that's awesome. That's the kind of world I want to live in. How important is that for us today? Especially as recovering fundamentalists who aren't sure what to believe in anymore. I think this is telling these kinds of stories. Being a mystic is the path. Anyway, that's my talk for this morning. We've already done the Lord's Supper. And so I want to open it up now for questions, for comments. Anything goes. What, uh, what thoughts does today spark for you? Um, do you have a, a story to share, maybe? Uh, um, an encounter, a mystical experience? Anybody? Yeah. What's your name again? Sorry. Lisa. Cool. Here's, here's a mic so everybody can hear you. Okay. So this one's a little deep, but... Um, can you hold it up a little higher? Thank you. Yeah, like this? Yeah, okay. perfect. Um, I mean, I think that when we're receptive, weird things happen all the time. If you're aware of of just being sensitive, kind of like when people are getting their dogs trained, it's not the dog getting trained. It's you be being able to pick up the cues as to what the dog's needs are. So I've always had um, strange, interesting things. My sister has as well. There's other family members as well. Um, and this kind of uh, goes back to my my sister. Um, um, I'll try not to be too detailed to, to, to protect her. Um, but years ago, she was married in her early 20s to someone who struggled with addiction. And we were so young, we, we weren't aware of what addiction, we, that wasn't something that we had been exposed to. And her husband was much older. And unfortunately, he got wrapped up in things that were beyond our understanding to our young, naive little minds. And uh, he passed away. Um, and it was so devastating for, for Laura that with her depression that she's disclosed, um, it only gave her reason to go down a path of, I should join him. Like I, I it, the woulda, coulda, shouldas that she could have done to sustain his life or something. And being identical twins, there's that intuitive nature that we have and we weren't together. I, I was, you know, we weren't, we weren't living in the same household, but I, I had this vision of her ex-husband who had passed away to the detail of his passing, what he looked like, um, where he was lost. Um, I think that we are given visions that just allow us to see the story, not necessarily that that's really where they are, but I saw that he was trying to pull her because he was scared in his passing and he wasn't sure where to go because it was very sudden. 
and I saw what he was presenting to my sister who was vulnerable and I could see pictures of what she was doing to head to her own demise. The next day I, I reached out to my sister to, to warn her of these visions and to ask her, what are you doing? Because these are things that she was doing that would never have crossed either of our minds. And she denied, she denied, denied, denied. And when she was coming out of months later, this, this episode of uh, trying to, to, to go down that, that hole of, of no return, she admitted to me what I had shared with her, the vision that I saw was absolutely true. And there's no way I would have known it. There's also no way I would have known the state of my brother-in-law of what he looked like upon his passing. It was only my sister that had the had a picture um, from 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 the from the from the morgue. And even a blanket that he presented himself that he was wrapped in. So these are things like why would that happen? I know that sounds very kind of like a story that no one wants to hear because it's very dark, but I think that vision was as, I think it, it presented itself to save my sister. So I call, I, I think that's God, God's intervention. Wow. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that story. Lots of stories like that. Lots of stories like that. It's great. Um, anybody else? Questions, comments, how does this strike you today? Stories? Yeah, Marsha. Lisa, would you mind passing that to her? Thank you. I don't have a recall exactly, but I know when I was a very small child, less than eight or seven or six, I knew God existed and I believed I heard the voice. And it just was your sermon today sort of reminded me that because um, I had a grandfather who had studied to preach and had spent his life doing that. And then at the end of and coming to America, he chose to be agnostic. And every Sunday, my parents invited was my grandfather and the mother, grandmother, to join us for a Sunday meal. And every single rotten Sunday, that guy, that grandfather would corner me and try to have me convince him why there is God. <laughs> and no words could I ever, as a little kid, come to mind. But I was unshakable. And that really bothered him And every single Sunday. He cornered me to try because he wanted to believe again. And he knew I did. And um, throughout my life, people have come to me and shared things that they've never shared with anyone else. And I, I've never known why or in strange places, including like a bathroom. Um, so I, 
I just feel that sometimes we understand without understanding and we admit it whether we have the words to or not. Yeah. Thanks, Marcia. Anybody else? Take your time. It took 10 years for me to get through the murder of my first husband. I didn't think I deserved to live. So what she was talking about was me trying to take my life for many, many years. When it came to shit or get off the pot, I realized I couldn't do that to my family. So I learned how to live, which was much harder. Many blessings have come my way for not being a coward. But one of the sweetest things to do a bookend on what Lisa said was that after surviving that and deciding I was going to live and create commitments with people so that I never ever used that as an option again. I met my second husband who I'm with and been with him 23 years. And I didn't meet him until 10 years after my first one died. And um, it was quite the reward. And uh, we had planned and got pregnant and had a baby. And when she was a newborn, I think just a day old, I was asleep in my, my bed with her. And I had a dream. And the dream was that I had to go down these stairs and at the bottom of the stairs was like a, the door that goes outside. And in comes Chris, my first husband. And I was ecstatic. I was so happy to see him. I was, oh, let me hug you, kiss you. I was so happy to see him. And he let me hug me at him and kiss him. And then he took me and he said, not speaking, but you know, through through my mind, I love you and I've missed you too, but I'm not here to see you. I'm here to see her. And with that, he went to another room and visited my newborn himself. And then he came out and he goes, she's beautiful, just like you. And that was it. But that was a nice bookend to yeah. reap the rewards of not being a coward. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. It's a very painful memory, but also very meaningful. Yeah, thank you. God bless you. Anybody else this morning? Yeah. All right. Well, Bob, do we have the uh, benediction? It's okay if we don't. All right, let's say this together now, as we always do. As we go from this place, we commit ourselves to the path of love, honesty, and humility. We dedicate ourselves, as Christ did, to the cause of justice and the courageous embrace of this life, this world, and each other. Amen. Thanks for being here, and thank you, everybody, for sharing. Go in peace. Mm -hmm.